I'd like to speak to you this morning as we embark on a new journey together and just basically go through what is, I would say, a small introduction and an overview of Second Peter. It could be expanded a great deal. There's so many factual um, evidences that we can look at, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. Matter of fact, I tried my utmost to end this message, and, and when I was putting this together in my study time, to dig into the Word of God itself with reference and reference, and let the Word of God speak, because what God has to say is why we're here today. Right? We want to hear "Thus saith the Lord," not "Thus saith man." And we'll hear what man has to say, but God knows how to silence man. Let. What Scripture says, let God be true, and every man found liar. So I'd like to, um, we're going to take this new journey to 2 Peter. Please turn with me to this wonderful epistle, 2nd Epistle of Peter. The 2nd Epistle of Peter. And to distinguish this epistle from the 1st Peter, it was given the Greek title, Petro B. Petro B, meaning the second of Peter, the second of Peter. As we embark on this wonderful, wonderful privilege together, I, I'm, lo- I'm so looking forward to this. And I would like to read to you just the opening salutation from this wonderful book, Second Peter, from chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This will not be an exposition on this two verses, but just to open this up of uh, to kind of give us a guideline of where we're going. Um, So hear the word of the living God. I'm reading from the King James Version this morning. And this letter begins with him saying, Simon Peter, Simon Peter, a servant, I love that, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. That's a key word. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. May God richly bless His holy word uh, to our hearts this morning as we seek His face. Let's please bow with me in prayer as we seek our God together and ask His blessing upon us as we uh, look into His wonderful Word. Our Father and our great God, Lord, as we come to be before You now, our first and great um, desire, as has already been spoken this morning, is to worship You in spirit and truth and in the beauty of Your holiness and to hallow Your holy name to hallow Your name in all that we do in our worship before You today. Lord, Your name is holy. Your name is majestic. And we pray, Lord, as we humble ourselves before You, we ask that You would glorify Yourself and that you also, we also pray that Your beloved Son, in whom You are well pleased in, would be lifted up. For if He's lifted up, He would draw men unto Himself, unto you. 
So Lord, we're here not just to hear information of the factual evidence, Lord, which that there's a place for that. But Lord, we, we're basically here to be transformed. It's transformation, Lord, that we need today. Lord, I need it in my own heart, and I know our brothers and sisters need it as well. So Father, we just pray that Your blessed Holy Spirit, we pray, in which we so desperately need Your help and the glorifying of Yourself, that we would be holy, fully looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, in which You are well pleased in Jesus Christ, and the only thing that pleases You is faith. So Lord, we thank You for that. And we ask, Lord, that again, Your blessed Holy Spirit would teach us. May the Spirit of God, Spirit of God, my teacher, be showing the things of Christ to me. Lord, give us understanding. and Remove the scales from our eyes that we may see the truth that's in Jesus. And we ask this for Your glory and for Jesus' sake and in His name I pray. Amen. What a wonderful privilege again we have to embark upon this new transition and this wonderful book. It's only three chapters, but it's really packed. It's really loaded up. We just went through 1 Peter. I think that was, uh, we've been through the book of James. We've been through the book of 1 Peter. We've uh, really two wonderful books there. But this book here is glorious as well. So we open and begin together in this wonderful study. We're not going to get very far today. I'd like to tell you and give you a warning in this text before us, even though it's short. Matter of fact, Lord willing, we'll re- revisit this um, very um, probably next week, Lord willing. We'll dig a little bit more deeper into the exposition and look into the content of these two verses and go deeper and expand on it a little bit more. And But today, I'd, I'd let at least to give you an introduction and an overview, a general overview, I'd like to say, and of the three chapters of Second Peter. So we look together at its authorship. I like to see it. look at the authorship, the background, which will go into the purpose, and in closing, see why the Second Peter is so important to us And last, in conclusion, I'd like to apply this to our personal lives and to give some personal application to what is said. Now, to begin with, let me mention this. I got this from uh, Insight for Living on a chart by Chuck Swindoll. I'd like to go ahead and bring this before you. I wish I really had it on board in a chart before you because it really breaks it down beautifully. But the introduction here in 2 Peter basically in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, is the first section is broken up in what is called an exhortation to spiritual maturity. That is no doubt the theme of this book. Exhortation, he exhorts to spiritual maturity. That's the first thing we see. It answers the question, how can I grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? How can I grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? So in chapter 1, we have the warning, be pure, be pure. You see that in verse 4, 4 of the purity that is, that is found. And then it goes on in verse 5, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. 
And then we had the reminder, which is in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. The promise is you will never stumble if you do these things. You see that in verse 10. You shall never fall. Or rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. You shall never stumble. The theme, as I've already mentioned, this is the theme of the book. Spiritual maturity as the remedy. That is the remedy for false teaching and the right response in light of Christ's second coming. Key verses is found in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. We'll look at that in a minute. And the Christ in 2 Peter is found actually in um, chapter 1, verse 19, we, we have also a sure word of prophecy where until you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That is speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The second section is pretty much broken up um, in what is called, which second... Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, denunciation of false teachers. Denunciation of false teachers. Now, answers the question, what should I expect? What should I expect from so-called prophets? Well, you definitely can't expect truth, can you? They twist the truth. They add to it and they subtract from it. The warning is, be aware. Be aware of them. And you see this in chapter 2, verse... 1 through 3. The reminder is found in chapter 2, verse 21 through 22. And the promise is the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. The perspective is looking back. Looking back. Then you have the third section in 2 Peter, which is anticipation of Christ's return in chapter 3, which answers the question, what sort of people ought we to be? What sort of people ought we to be? That's a good question, isn't it? And he actually answers that. And uh, the warning is be diligent. Be diligent. Peter speaks about diligence a great deal. The reminder is in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. And the promise is we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And the perspective is looking ahead. So we see in the perspective of chapter 1, how we are to um, look, uh, look within. Chapter 2, looking back. Chapter 3, looking ahead. Past, present, and future. And the present, of course, is looking within. But I, I like that. So, with that in mind, I'd like for us to look at the, the authorship, the background, purpose, and see what, why Second Peter is important. So with that in mind, let us begin. First of all, let's look at the authorship of this epistle of Second Peter. Well, it's very obvious it begins with Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, but that has been challenged by some so-called ancient and modern-day um, scholars and critics on that, that which they challenge Simon P. 
Peter to identify himself as he identifies himself as the author of this letter. And actually, he later remarks that this is the second letter to the readers. You see that in chapter 3, verse 1a says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. So we know this is his second epistle. He mentions the second. But there's a first. And it covers five chapters, and we already went through that first letter. But there is a second one. Now, this blows my mind. How a scholarly person, supposedly a theologian, would challenge the authorship here. And I'm going to give you the reasons why, which is absolutely ridiculous, but uh, those reasons are really ripped apart from Scripture itself. So, this indicates that that Peter is writing to the same believers. If you go back and says, Beloved, I write now, write unto you. So we, we, even though it begins with those that have attained, to them that have attained a like precious faith, he's also speaking to, I believe, the same churches in the same group in Asia Minor who were being persecuted for the faith. So who had received his first letter. Since Peter, like Paul, was put to death by an edict of the wicked Nero, and by the way, Nero died in around June of A.D. 68. A.D. 68. So, it's most likely that since he put out that edict, he had, more than likely, Peter was in prison in Rome. He wrote that in Rome. And, and, and the date they give us is between A.D. 66 to 68, before Nero's death. So shortly before his martyrdom in Rome, uh, speaking of Peter. So in chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, let me read that to you. He says this, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, that tabernacle speaks of his body, the tent, the tent, the tabernacle, to stir you up. I love that. To stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. He knew his martyrdom was coming close. So basically he's in prison. The edict is upon him. He's going to be put to death very soon. He knew this. And then he says this, Even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Jesus showed him this. So moreover, I will endeavor that you be able after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. To bring these things to your remembrance. So he writes the second letter, and it contains several personal allusions to Peter's personal life. It begins with his, his name, Simon Peter. And there are so many verses, and I'd like to show you some of these verses. And mention that his death, which I briefly mentioned in the verse we just read, He was close to his death in verse 14 of chapter 1, which we just read. He had had been told by Jesus not long ago by Christ Himself in John 21, 18, and 19. Jesus tells him that he would be martyred in an old age. And uh, that's when you you remember what He said. He said, what about John? (laughs) And, And... Jesus basically, well, what's that to you? In other words, mind your own business. I'm telling you about you. Jesus was so to the point. But 
that you, you can read that in John 20, chapter 21. He tells him. He predicts his martyrdom. So in verse 13 through 15 of chapter 1, the words tent, tabernacle, this is interesting. If you notice in the word decease and exodus, why are these words important? Listen very closely. Every word of God is pure and inspired by the Holy Spirit. These words are used by Luke, the writer of Luke in the account of the transfiguration that's found in Luke 9, 31 through 33. And one of the most convincing proofs that Peter wrote this epistle is the reference also that's found in chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, which says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we, and the we is speaking about the other apostles, John and James, we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We were eyewitnesses, apostles of His majesty. And He goes on to tell us in verse 17, For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice. He never forgot that. That voice actually rebuked Him. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. And when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, He called it the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Verse 18, This voice, this voice which came audibly uh, from heaven, He says, We heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. I got to thinking about why was that mount holy? Because God's presence was on that mount in a manifest way. That's why he calls it the Holy Mount. Jesus was there. Anywhere Jesus is, it's hallowed. So that's why he calls it the Holy Mount. But the writer Peter was present on that Holy Mount. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 18, uh, we, we find the words such as enticing and allure, Enticing and an allure. So, why are these two words important to us? Well, let me tell you why. Reason being, they come from the Greek word delilago. Delilago. I probably mispronounced that Greek word, but let me give, give you the meaning of it and you, 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 you get what he's saying. It means to catch with allure. To catch with allure. So they, it's, they are from a vocabulary of a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. And are thus especially appropriate for Peter. That's another convincing evidence that Peter wrote this epistle. A final word also that speaks of Peter's authorship is based upon his personal experience. It's found in chapter 3, verse 17, which says this. You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest you also being led away with error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Now I want you to notice the word steadfastness. This word comes from the same word, root word, strengthen. Strengthen. And if you remember correctly, and from the Gospel of Luke 22-32, Jesus use this word speaking to Peter personally before he denied him. And he says, when you have returned to me, strengthen 
your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. And it is also found in the word establish. And we saw that in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 10. Establish you. It's the same thing. And 2 Peter 1, 2, also one more final note here. 2 Peter 3.15, in which addresses Paul. He addresses Paul as our dear brother. Our dear brother. That's interesting, isn't it? He had a good relationship with the Apostle Paul. And as you well know, uh, Paul mentions that he had to confront Peter to his face because of his hypocrisy. He had to Publicly, he did that. And uh, a lot of people, we really come down hard on Peter on that and look at, look at Paul as the hero. Well, really, Paul the Apostle was absolutely right. And it was not because he was right in himself. He understood the gospel and Peter was struggling with this. He compromised. And when there's compromise in the gospel, even though Peter was the head apostle, here's the Apostle Paul brings to his attention. He rebukes him openly because of his hypocrisy. And yet, right here, he calls him our dear brother. Now, how much respect this head apostle had for this wonderful apostle, the apostle Paul, our dear brother. This suggests also that the author was close to Paul, Peter. That There are some references that point to Peter as the author of Second Peter. So now, now let me ask the question here as we as I kind of build up to something. Why do I bring up these references? Mainly because, again, as I've already mentioned, there have been ancient and contemporary scholars, critics, that have rejected Peter as the author of this letter. They have their reasons, and I want to ask why and for what reason. I want to tell you what, why, why they, the way they look at it, which is, I personally believe, wrong. But we're going, to, we're going to kind of break this down a little bit. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think this is important. And you've got to realize, there's, there's quite a few scholars that reject Second Peter and the book of Jude. They're considered as dark epistles. And the, the main reason, they argue, for example, that the, the personal references to Peter's life are a literary device used by someone else who wrote under the apostle's name. Basically, it means that it was forged. So they're basically saying, these, these critics, these scholars, are saying that this letter has been forged by someone else. They called himself Peter. Now, i got something to say about this. The letter in order to create the appearance of authenticity. MacArthur in his commentary, I'm telling you, I wished I had the time to really go in depth on this, but you can look it up in your, in, in your time. MacArthur, John MacArthur, as you well know, is a very conservative um, pastor. Conservative, uh, I believe he's a conservative theologian. And I got a little bit to say what he had to say about it. He, he, he goes into five or six pages on this because of the importance of it and basically brings out the truth. And there's so many things that he goes into, the ins and outs. But I don't want to take that time, but I want to give you one quote I wrote down from his commentary I think is very important. From Second uh, Peter commentary, John MacArthur, he says this, quote, There are only two possibilities regarding the authorship of Second Peter. 
Either it was written by Peter, as it claims, or it is a pseudonymous. It is pseudonymous and the work of a forger who pretended to be Peter. If the latter is true, then the author would have been a hypocrite as well as a liar. A deceiver condemning false teachers for being what he himself was and giving severe warning about divine judgment. (laughs) Forger ain't going to do that. And then again, furthermore, if the book was written by a forger, MacArthur says, it is difficult to see what the forger's motive was. That's so good. The authors of pseudonymous works usually attach the name of a prominent person to their writings to give credence to their false teaching. That's a good point. And then he says this, but 2 Peter contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of the New Testament. End quote. Now like I said, he goes on into it and like we, we could have spent this whole hour just looking into the authorship, but I believe we need to go on. But I, I am absolutely convinced, beloved, from the beginning that the church has always rejected forged documents. Even the scriptures itself speak about this. I looked it up, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse two, the even the apostle Paul warned the Thessalonians not to be quickly shaken. Listen to what he says. Not to be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter. A letter as if from us. In other words, there was forgery that was going on at that time. And then he goes on to say, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, they had erroneous teaching about the day of the Lord. And of course, the false teachers, and I really believe this is why the critics is going after this so much, they do not want to own up and knowing that the day of the Lord is what it is and says it is in the Scriptures. And you notice in Second Peter and in the book of Jude, speaks much about false teachers and the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the quick and the dead. So you know that. I believe that they want to get escape from that. That. Now also I want to point out very quickly, I don't have time to go into the ins and outs on this, but I learned and I didn't know this. It's more than likely that Peter borrowed from Jude. And if you read Second Peter and Jude together, I think this would be great in your devotional time. It, they go parallel, especially chapter 2. Chapter 2 goes parallel with Jude. So their concerns as, as apostles, and it doesn't it make sense that the concern as an apostle is their love for the truth. The false teachers were coming in and filtrating the church to corrupt it with its false teachings against the truth, to contaminate, to infiltrate. And I tell you, I'm so thankful. As I was reading this letter over and over again, I'm I'm so thankful for this man that was a fisherman that God transformed through Jesus Christ even after denying the Lord. And here he is being faithful to his call as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful? Well, let's move on. So, um, even at the early stage of the churches in church history, forgers were circulating... Letters, 
throughout the churches uh, to be from Paul so they could easily spread false doctrine. That's what it's basically saying. So there was forgery going on. So, but the bottom line is this great truth, and you're going to love this. It's so simple. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, could never inspire forgery. The Spirit of God's not going to put His breath on that. 1 Peter 1, 20-21 says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is authentic. He was been moved by the Holy Spirit. So I seriously doubt any forger would even uh, pin that truth down. Therefore, even the early church rightly rejected all such words. Now, church rightly rejected all these words, even though it took many, many years. These two books, the second epistle of Peter and Jude, even took the reformers some time because of some of the critics that were saying what they were saying at the time. So they, they had to look into it to make sure that it was authentic. And it is. It is. And if Second Peter had been a forgery, beloved, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the early church fathers and the reformers would have rejected it. Thus, despite the skepticism and the doubts of modern critics from these so-called scholars... I don't think they're real scholars. I think they're liberal and, and uh, they just by name. The best answer to the question of who wrote 2 Peter is found in chapter 1, verse 1a. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I, that's enough for me. So if 1 Peter deals with the problems of the outside, 2 Peter deals with the problems from the inside. And that's basically the, the setting. And personally also, I, I want to say this, when, when, when he opens up Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, that settles it. He wrote it. So God Himself ordained and is, is authenticated by the Holy Spirit. So Peter writes to warn believers about false teachers who are peddling damaging damnable doctrine. And you see in 2 Peter, this is what it's about. So Peter begins his letter, his second letter, by urging them to keep close watch of their own personal lives. That's absolutely critical, isn't it? Next thing is, is the background in this, of 2 Peter, the background. It's kind of a survey, so I'm going to kind of go through this quickly as I can. Already on the horizon, Peter sees false teachers who will bring in... Um, the church destructive heresies he speaks of that allow loose and licentious lifestyles. The second letter of, of, of Peter was particularly directed against the Gnostic and Antinomian philosophies. The Gnostics and the Antinomians. Those two her heresies which the false teachers taught. And I'm going to touch on that. What is Gnosticism? What is Antinomianism? It's basically the Gnostics taught that in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, one must also receive the historic knowledge. This heresy was repudiated 
not only by the writers of the New Testament epistles, but also the church fathers who lived in the period after the early church. Gnosticism's been around a while. And as you well know, Gnosticism basically says it separates matter from thought. They basically conclude that matter was evil. Matter, substance, is evil. A formulated idea that the possession of knowledge was the only requirement for salvation. And beloved, this is why they did not want to attribute the humanity of Jesus Christ that He was in flesh. Because they felt that, and they believed that flesh, substance, anything that was matter is absolutely evil. So Peter refuted this idea by stressing the fact that they had already received the true knowledge which is in Jesus Christ and by which He came the Word was made flesh. They witnessed Him. He handled, they handled Him. They touched Him. They seen Him. So 2 Peter 1, 16-21 uh, basically covers that. Next is another damnable heresy. Gnosticism is one. Antinomianism is another one. As you well know, antinomianism believes that since salvation was by grace alone, the requirements of the moral law were irrelevant. In other words, without the law. So they did not believe in what we believe in the moral law of God. Paul says the law, of course, cannot save us. It's a schoolmaster, it's a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ, right? It, it condemns us, but it shows us our sin. There's a great reason and a purpose for the law of God. It is critical. And we don't get enough of this today. Basically speaks of His holiness. As His purity. And the standard. So they throw that all out. Paul says the law is good. And the law is holy. But it's only a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus Christ. It shows us our sin. But um, the antinomians... They, they believe in throwing out the law altogether. It's just this cheap grace, basically. That's an antinomian. We see a lot of this today, in our day. The gospel of Jesus Christ stands alone, beloved, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul anyone, even warns that anybody that tampers with it will be accursed. They'd be damned. This is strong words. Galatians 1, 6-10. Let me read it. Bold statement to anyone who would dare tamper with the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is not to be tampered with. It's not to be added to and it's not to be subtracted from. He says, I marvel. I marvel. In other words, I'm surprised at you. That's what he's saying. That you are so soon removed from Him. Talking about Jesus Christ that called you into the grace of Christ God unto another gospel. Another gospel. Then he says, which is not another. There's only one true gospel, but they're purporting another one. But there be some, who's the some is he talking about? The false teachers. Some that would trouble you, that would pervert the gospel of Christ. We see this today. That's what false teachers do. They pervert the gospel. But though we, he's speaking about him as an apostle, or an angel from heaven, this is the seriousness of it, folks, Preach any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. 
Let them be damned. As we said before, so say now again. He repeats it. That's how serious it is. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than which you have received, let him be accursed. And then he says this, and I love this statement from Paul. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? This man was not a man pleaser, folks. This man was, he had a single eye in pleasing God. And he answers that. For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now let me move on. How does the second Peter begin? It begins by Simon Peter, a servant or a bond servant of the, of an, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter devotes his second uh, chapter of Second Peter to attacking the licentious lifestyles that naturally resulted among those who held this belief. Paul also addressed this philosophy in Romans 6 and denied the accusation that he himself held within this view in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. And Brother Keith brought out a very good point from his defense of his apostleship, which he, he hated even mentioning himself in it, but that's why a lot of times he speaks in the third person. He is defending the gospel, but he had to defend his apostleship some way or another. So I'm telling you, it was relentless in, in that day in the early church, and doesn't it make sense? Satan was doing everything he, can, he could to bombard the church with false teachers because he figured if he can get at the root of it, the foundation of it, he could destroy it. I'm telling you, these apostles had to suffer and defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints. They had to stand in the truth. And that's why it was so critical. So the words that they wrote, it's all inspired of God from these apostles. So wonderful. Aren't you thankful these are preserved for us? Now the third chapter of 2 Peter, he reproves them further skepticism about Christ's return included within the discussion in which he corrects their faulty perception of this event. He gives one of the most detailed descriptions of end time events, I believe, in all of Scripture. It's absolutely awesome. I'm going to read some of it to you. But it speaks about the delay of Jesus in which he reproves them of. Jesus' return, we still have this today, how people are skeptic, they're mockers or scoffers in the last days. And where's his return? Well, it's very apparent. He explains because God is long-suffering and patient. It does not exist within the concept of our time frame. Let me read it to you. 2 Peter 3.8 But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. What one thing? That one day... Is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. According to God, He dwells in eternity. He does not necessarily, He's not ruled by time. He created time. He created all that. He dwells in eternity. Our timetable, our calendar is a lot different than God's. And He's basically saying like a thousand years is one day and, and, and a thousand years is one day and a thousand years... Uh, one day is a thousand years. I'm sorry, I'll get it right in just a few minutes. But Peter also tells them that when the day of the Lord comes, it will be accompanied by a total destruction of physical universe. Now, isn't it interesting? Uh, the Gnostics 
denied what they believed about believed that matter was evil. And he really lays it on hard with the truth that everything physical, everything material is going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned up. And I like to, let me insert a parenthesis here, not with atomic and hydrogen explosions, which many false teachers in our day speaks of, that the world's going to end up with atom bombs. And Look, I want to tell you, as powerful as those bombs are, they're firecrackers to God. God Himself is going to destroy the earth. According to the Bible, God Himself is going to destroy it with intense heat. And you read in this in, in, in chapter 2, he speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah was turned to ashes. Fire and brimstone came out of heaven. Now people say, well, how that's going to happen? Well, God calls fire when Elijah prayed on the Mount Carmel. He prayed, he prayed the fire of God to come down and it came down and licked up the whole altar, the stones, the sacrifice, the water and everything. It was intense heat. And that was a small demonstration of what God's going to do to this earth and this universe in the end. Matter of fact, let me read it to you. 2 Peter 3, 10 and 12 says, 10 through 12, but the day of the Lord, you want to hear a little bit about the day of the Lord? Will come as a thief. It's going to come unexpectedly. A thief doesn't give a telegram and say, I'm coming to rob you. He's going to sneak in. He's going to come unexpectedly. And that's the way the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus is going to be. In the night, like a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. It's going to be a powerful, loud noise. And the elements, listen to that, the elements. What's the elements? Well, you know your chemistry and you know your chemicals. Atoms and neutrons and protons and electrons and all that. It's going to basically disintegrate. Can God do that? Well, He created it. He can do it. (laughs) All the matter... In this world, it's amazing. You look outside, you see this world. It's going to be burned up, beloved. God is going to literally burn everything up with intense heat. It's going to melt. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The entire universe will be consumed by fire, by the fire of God. And does not the Scripture say that God is a consuming fire? It's amazing. People deny this, but it's, this, this is going to be how it's going to all end. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner? Now since this is going to happen, he said, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct, your conversation, your, 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 the way you walk and live and in godliness? And then he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, what's going to happen afterwards? Verse 13 of chapter 3. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise. Notice how many times He says, Look. Look for the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what we're looking for. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in Him in peace without spot and blameless. That's powerful. Now, that's just a quick jet tour through 2 Peter. I just covered some main highlights. But let's move on. Well, let me ask the question, why is 2 Peter so important? Why is it so important? Well, the churches of Asia Minor were not just struggling with the persecution on the outside and suffering 
addressed in Peter's first letter, but they also had strife, they had dissension within the ranks, within the churches. In the effort to stem the tide of heresy, false teaching, among the Christians, Peter emphasized the importance of learning knowledge of the truth. This is so critical. Clinging to a proper knowledge of God. The knowledge of the Holy. Reminds me of Proverbs 30, verse 3. I neither learned wisdom, nor I have the knowledge of the Holy. Reminded me of a quote by E.W. Tozer in his book, actually titled Knowledge of the Holy, that did a wonderful job on the attributes of God. He said this, the decline... Listen to this. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. It's brought on our troubles. And then he says, and then he gives a solution. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. That's a great quote. In fact, this word knowledge... As we go through this book, we will see this word knowledge come up time and time again. I might have miscounted it, but I counted 15 times in the span of the short three chapters. 15 times that word comes up in three chapters. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And what's he talking about? He's just not talking about intellectual knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of the holy. He's talking about the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Well, last, not quite last, next to last, what would be the theme of Second Peter? The theme of Second Peter. Well, Peter's theme is no doubt a simple one, but it's an important one. Pursue spiritual maturity. Pursue spiritual maturity. How do we do that? Through study of the Word of God. Our study and the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, meditating on the law day and night, saturating ourselves, beloved, in the Word of God. How do we get sanctified? Through the Word of God. How do we have knowledge of the truth? The Word of God. How do we know more about who we are? The Word of God. God's Word is the foundation. It's the remedy for false teaching, by the way. And it's the proper and the right response to heretics. That's how we... That's how we defend the faith. And we're ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. So in light of Christ's promised second coming in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 16, when false teachers begin to scratch itching ears, which we see so often, of immature Christians within the churches and the ranks, the body of Christ begins to tear apart, to break apart. And that's exactly what the false teachers want to do. Tear us apart. And I I personally believe this. Satan works harder within the church than outside the church. his, His desire is to tear the church apart. But Jesus says it's invincible. He said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Let me give you another quick scripture here. Go with me to Ephesians. Listen to what Paul says about spiritual maturity. Look at chapter 4. 
verse 13 through 15. Verse 13 through 15. I love this. Let me back up to verse 12. And he speaks in verse 10, in verse 11, he talks about the gifts that God gives. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then he says, what, for what purpose? For the perfecting of the saints. The perfecting of the saints. There it is. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. To edify the body of Christ. And then he says this, till we all come into the unity of the faith. The faith. That faith which, which was once delivered unto the saints, Jude speaks of. And of the knowledge, there, Paul's even speaking about the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of the Son of God, His knowledge, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And notice what he says, that we henceforth no more be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slate of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking truth in love may grow up there it is again grow up in, into him and in all things which is the head even Christ so there you have spiritual maturity and, and let me say this faith and that's foundational. Our faith in Jesus Christ and His person, His works. That's what we're all about. That's what the church is all about. Is having faith in the person and works of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this. A note here in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its Savior, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. Wow. But to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. What does that mean? Well, basically, what our Lord is saying here, if salt loses its flavor, its saltiness, it loses its effectiveness. It's not effective. And it's taste. And it becomes tasteless. It's worth nothing. And it becomes non-effective because salt is both a preservative and a flavor enhancer. I, I love salt. Probably, I'll probably put too much on food, but I love its enhancer of how it brings the taste buds to life, isn't it? It does. And no doubt, it's, it's a wonderful crystal, but no doubt Jesus used it right here as a, an example of the way we should be on the decaying world. That's decaying away. We, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. But let's look at salt. It's used as a, preserver, a preservative is what Jesus de- definitely had in mind here. You preserve. You are the preservative. You take away the Christians in this world right now, what would happen? It would be total destruction. Right now, it's, the, the only thing is holding it back. Is, the decay is the salt of the earth, the light of the world. What God is doing through His body, through His people. Pure salt that is common in the Dead Sea. I got this from John MacArthur. He says this, Pure salt that is common in the Dead Sea area is contaminated with gypsum and other minerals and may have a flat taste or be ineffective as a 
preservative, end quote. So this is what Jesus is saying. You and I are that preservative. We are the salt of the earth. But if it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. That's a powerful word. <laughs> Lord, help us. Peter also encouraged his readers to apply themselves to acquiring true knowledge of God, living out the life of faith with all diligence so that they may be found in Jesus Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. I love that. That's how he ends the letter. So if believers did not follow the instructions in righteousness, they would be giving their Christian community over to the heretics. So it's so, so important. Now, this brings me to the conclusion. The conclusion is of our survey and our overview of this wonderful book as we go through it. How do I personally apply this truth to my life and my everyday living? My everyday living. Well, I believe that that's a soul-searching question. And I like, as I wrote that down, I was saying, Lord, search my own heart. We're going to revisit this great verse again, but it, this, this is basically found in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. I already mentioned it to you, but for now, it's, it's the godly instruction in which Peter began with. Look at that. He begins the same, this letter the same way he ends it. Notice the way he began it. And let me read this just very quickly. Verse 3 through 11. According as His divine power, He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to the glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, there's the word knowledge, to knowledge temperance, that means self-control, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, charity. And then he says this, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again, knowledge, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he has, was purged from his old sins. We need to remember where we came from. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence. There it is. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. I love that. Now, looking at pursuing Christian maturity and deepening knowledge of the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ will lead us to doctrinal, sound doctrine and stability in our living. Because what we believe, the way we think, will actually be played out in our life. No doubt. It will come out. Our view of God, whatever how we view God, how we review the truth, will eventually come out. It will show. And it's also a preventive from being led astray. I love that. Again, verse 17 in chapter 3, Ye therefore, beloved, 
So you know that these things before, beware, lest you also, being led away, led astray, with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. That's a warning, isn't it? We need to be careful not to be lifted up in pride like Paul said. He that thinks he stands, take heed, he fall. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me say this. The recipients of Peter's letter with all that go through trouble, difficult times, Paul said this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Remember what he said, vengeance is the Lord. And basically the vengeance is coming when Jesus comes back. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's basically going to happen when you read it in Revelation 19. Well, through trials, trials hit us all, right? They hit hard. Trouble hits us all because Job said it, every man that's born of woman is born in trouble. So we're going to have troubles, we're going to have trials, we're going to have losses, we're going to have crosses. But I want to encourage you to this end. These struggles sometimes come from within the church. They also come from people that's close within our family, right? We've been there. We know this pain. We know intuitively that this is true in our personal lives. Marriage can have strains on it, hardships. That's when we need to grow and dig harder and press in harder to spiritual growth and get closer to the Jesus Christ and know all about these wonderful, great virtues of forgiveness and everything that he just listed here in chapter 1. Relationships within the church, within our family. Beloved, two great truths that we must know. The first is to guard against any kind of discord from within our families, within our churches. But first we must, I believe, first of all, we must have a knowledge of who we are. But how do we know that? We must have a knowledge of the truth. We must have a knowledge of God. And that's what he says. Self-knowledge is important. But the most important knowledge is knowledge of the truth. How can you have a knowledge of who we are unless we know the truth? That's why truth is everything. It's everything. Know the truth. Love the truth. Die for the truth. Speak the truth. Live the truth. It's all about the truth. And we must know who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is. And that is our knowledge of God through His Holy Word. The first line of defense against the conflicts that threaten to tear us apart. So he says this, beware, beware. Be on your guard. Least you also being led away with error by the, of the wicked of unprincipled men. But grow. That, there it is. The growth is the sanctification. 
We're sanctified through that truth by growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That in, in that, have that in mind. It means the grace that we're in. So, what does it mean of the grace to grow in our faith? Well, it basically means take time to be holy. Take time to guard yourself, your minds. Guard your minds. Guard your heart. How do we do that? With the proper knowledge of the truth. I, I really believe that's knowing this book, not just head knowledge, but hiding the Word in our heart is everything, isn't it? So that we may not stray so easily to stray away from this. So our flesh is so weak, isn't it? But the Spirit is willing. That's what Jesus said. So that we may not drift away, that we may not strip, stray from the path that God has so graciously given. Let me close with this. It's a prayer from Psalm 119. 119, and in the closing of this prayer, and let this be your prayer, let this be my prayer. Psalm 119, verse 169 through 176. Listen to the psalmist. Listen to this psalmist. Let my cry, let my cry come near before Thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to Thy Word. Let my supplication come before Thee. Deliver me according to Thy Word. My lips shall utter praise when Thou hast taught me Thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of Thy Word. For all Thy commandments are righteousness. Let Thine hand help me, for I have chosen Thy precepts. I have longed for Thy salvation, O Lord, and Thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise Thee, and let Thy judgments help me. In verse 176, the last verse of this great mountain peak, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Amen and amen. Notice how many times, according to thy word, according to thy word, according to thy word, according to thy word, according to thy word. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Let us all pray. Father, may this be our prayer. May it be so. According to Thy Word. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.